Well, hello. Welcome to Foothills Deeper Pod. I'm Gretchen, and I am so excited to be your host for today as we are kicking off our new series, Gender Fluent, with a subtitle of Curious, Conversant, and Courageous. Because those are all the qualities that we are practicing and working towards and inviting in this series where we are exploring the strange and sacred world of gender. This is a topic that Sean came back from sabbatical, really excited to invite us as a congregation to spend some time with over the course of a whole series. I placed it immediately on our worship calendar because... I think it's the kind of topic that we can easily put off and not spend enough dedicated time really diving in for all kinds of reasons, including the ways that we can take for granted a certain kind of progressive orientation in our community or in ourselves about how we think about gender Or maybe the other way, which is the kind of deep discomfort or lack of literacy or understanding we feel about the topic of gender. And so we just kind of keep putting it off or set it to the side is kind of always a sub-component, a secondary component of a series or of a, a topic we're exploring. But with Sean's encouragement, I felt really excited about placing gender right in the center of our congregation's ministry over these five weeks. As a part of our preparation for this series, our staff team has spent quite a bit of time thinking about gender, our own gender stories. It's a really vulnerable topic, actually, it turns out, to explore more directly and in dialogue with others, the stories of how gender lives in you or has lived in your own life. For me, I grew up with two sisters and a mom and a dad, which meant that for me, being a girl felt as if it's like the human default, the, like what it is to be neutral in the way that I later came to understand that other people un- think of as being a boy as neutral, like what it means to just be a human, no particular adjective required. My dad in my family was the unusual one. Being a boy for me was always a little confusing and to be honest, a little off-putting. It was just like completely outside of what I understood and, and mostly was a story of what I couldn't access For a lot of my childhood, gender was a story of what I couldn't do or what I couldn't wear or how I wasn't supposed to act because I couldn't be a priest. I went to Catholic school. Couldn't be a priest, which in my world was like the pinnacle of authority and insight, wisdom, direction. I could be a nun, but they just worked for all the priests. I couldn't be an altar boy. I grew up before there were the Catholic Church decided that girls could be on the altar at all. I couldn't be a football player, which in my small town was the pinnacle of athletic achievement as well and worthy of gathering the whole the whole town around on Friday nights. 
I, again, I went to Catholic school, so we wore uniforms. And up until I think it was third or fourth grade, we weren't allowed to wear pants. So we could wear skirts or there's like a little uniform dress. Uh, And I was remembering the other day that for me, what that meant is that I spent a lot of Fridays at recess running from boys because it was designated Friday flip up day, which meant that boys chased the girls and try to flip up their skirt. Also, being a girl meant that was an experience of being told not not to be so talkative or bossy. Bossy is an interesting word. It's You think it sounds gender neutral, but then you try to imagine calling a boy bossy. It just doesn't happen. It's a word reserved for girls, as in inappropriately trying to act like you could be in charge. Also, was I was clear I sh- shouldn't be quite as competitive as I was or as good at math. All of these things that I kind of wanted to be but knew I was outside the norm or outside of what girls were supposed to do. But I never had a sense that that meant that I should be something other than a girl. I just thought that it was unjust because again, I thought that being a girl was just what it meant to be human. I never exactly understood the correlation between biological anatomy and some sort of limitation on what I could or shouldn't do as a human being in the world. Add to that, I was, like I said, pretty competitive and athletic, so I was on a lot of sports teams. And that meant that I had a lot of interaction with boys. And mostly those boys were not very serious. They didn't take the practices very seriously. And they often missed the instructions and then later messed up the team. I played soccer and baseball and basketball. So I didn't have the best impression of boys, to be honest. So I just didn't understand why boys were allowed to do things and girls weren't. I wasn't, I wasn't particularly upset at boys, but more just confused about my role as a girl and why there were limitations. This led me in second grade, which I was, I went to school early, so I was a young second grader. Probably I was seven or, yeah, seven or eight at most. I wrote to the, in the Catholic Church, the person that makes the decisions in my mind was the archbishop for our archdiocese to ask him why we couldn't, why I couldn't be an altar boy I'm sure I, I wish I had a copy of that letter now because I'm sure I said things like I'm saying now, but in my own seven and eight year old mindset about, you know, why it was unfair and why just it truly didn't make any sense to me about why I couldn't ring the bells and help the priest in the ways that my friends in school who were boys could. Gender is strange. Gender is confusing Gender is a mystery in a lot of ways, and it still has very real impact on who we are, who we come to be, how we imagine ourselves, how we interact in the world. These stories of when I was little, young, very young, just a child, they still are impactful to how I think about myself and see myself today in the ways that for all of us, gender plays out. Gender is a construction, an imagination, a fiction, and also it has very real effects. In his sermon this week, Sean's going to talk a lot about his own gender formation 
and get into some of the distinctions between gender and sexual orientation, distinctions and also dynamic. So we're going to listen to that in a minute. But first, before we get into that, I asked Sean to come talk with me a little bit about his motivation for this series and why he came back from sabbatical with such a clarity about the priority of this topic for our congregation. All right, I'm so glad to have Sean here with me so we can answer and dig into some of these questions. Sean, welcome. Hi. 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 Uh, So we're going to listen to your sermon here in a second. But before we do, I wanted to just kind of set the stage a little bit. Uh, Why did you feel like this is an important topic for church? I think there's a lot of reasons it's important for us to talk about gender in church. There's the kind of unpacking of historical baggage and the way that churches have been a part of kind of the upholding of gender norms and male supremacy in society and like have (laughs) furnished that with a like a a religious and moralistic belief system like that's kind of like oh why is it important to talk about these in churches in general well firstly because of our kind of part to play in unpacking and dismantling that and i think that goes in a similar vein to the ways that gender is right now caught in this culture war between you know these regressive forces that are trying to bring us backwards in our understandings of gender bringing it back to something very rigid very controlled versus the impulse that i think was has been within our tradition for a long time that that values a sense of agency and and freedom of identity and expression and i think it's important for for religious people to take us claim in this conversation. So there's all of that. But I think the thing that mostly captivated me and the reason I wanted to bring this conversation or to have this conversation in in church for all of us is that I really don't understand gender. I mean, I get it, but I don't. Like it, it really is something that mystifies me in a lot of different ways. My own relationship to it, other people's. I don't think I'm alone in that. I think when you kind of take the rock up and you like look under what's there, I think most people have a really complicated relationship to it. And that seems like a really fruitful place for us as a faith community to dive in, is to kind of pick that rock up, see what's kind of crawling underneath and and ask ourselves, hmm. What does it mean for us as individuals, as a community, and as a society? Where do our values call us to go and be? What do our sense of selves call us to go and be? So going back to your the first reason about unpacking baggage, I really appreciate that. And I think you probably heard comments after the service, just like I did of if only I'd had this kind of conversation happening in my church growing up. So I, when I heard that, it of course just brought me to my own, just my own reflections of if only I had heard this kind of message growing up. So I want, I've, I just, it made me wonder about if that, you know, how do you think this kind of message would have landed for you as a 
I don't know what you are probably mature for your age. So we'll say like a 10 or 11 year old, you know, if you would have heard this kind of thing from the people around you, or maybe you did. And in which case I'd love to hear about that. I think I was lucky in that there was a degree of, my parents were not overly rigid in their conceptions of gender. I think they've both had experiences growing up and in their adulthood in which their own gender, their sense of gender kind of rubbed against some societal conception that, you know, wanted to give us a little bit more freedom. So I think that, that, that general sense of, huh, there's a little bit more flexibility in my family, but there wasn't a an explicit conversation about gender and the possibilities. So like the ideas that that now we are able to, you know, talk to kids and say, hey, there are all of these different ways that you might feel about your gender. And each of them is beautiful. Each of them is sacred. Each of them is okay. I think that sort of message would have been received like just a, 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 a like a deep exhale of like, oh, okay. I don't I don't think I knew. I don't. I'm still figuring things out in terms of my own gender world. But I think it would have felt like there was less or not less pressure, but there just would have been more possibilities to because it would have been represented. Mm. Rather than kind of me in my world, sort of thinking I was like knowing I was doing things differently than a lot of my peers and just having to like forge that river <laughs> kind of by myself, you know, in school and in like a peer groups, like to have that sort of external buttress of like, oh, but that's, that's normal. That's okay. You've got a place here wherever you land. I think that would have really shifted. I think some of the internalization and struggle that I had with whether or not it was okay for me to be kind of trying to follow my like my authenticity as best I could. And I don't think, you know, some people might think it might be confusing, right? Like to, to provide all these different options and possibilities, but it's much more confusing to, to have an experience inside you that isn't represented somewhere else. Because mm. as a child, you inherently think that you're wrong and that you're deficient rather than, oh, I'm just, I'm unsure, or I feel inclined towards one of these options, one of these possibilities that is being represented to me as valid. I guess it's a very different reality. That brings up so many questions for me. Thank you for that. In that, okay, let's see where, where do I want to go first? I don't know. I, I think the thing that was most present for me is the question of, <laughs> in the end, does gender actually matter? Like, is it even a thing? And by that, I mean, like, as you're describing your own process of kind of, oh, well, it was nice to have some expansive possibilities and flexibility, but we didn't really get to that next level of exhale. Like, is that next level of exhale just 
a release of any concept of gender? Does the gender, does gender really matter? Is it only a prison? And how have you come to think about that? And this is like a big overarching question for our series, I know, but it's the thing that I feel like I want to just put on the table right away. Oh, it's, <laughs> I feel like it's one of the central struggles and questions that I'm like living with right now. And and part of that is, as I say later on, on in the in the in the sermon, as you move into the world of deconstruction of gender deconstruction of like challenging these assumptions that you have about the essentialness of any of these ideas of gender, knowing that they change across time, they change across culture, they change across your lifespan, they change as you age, social norms shift, possibilities open and close. Like just the, the amount of fluidity in even a very traditional understanding of gender is is vast, let alone taking in the experiences of, you know, gender, gender minorities, if we want to say that, queer, queer people, trans people, non-binary people, gender non-conforming people, you know, factor them into the equation and you really have this kaleidoscope of of diversity that really challenges i think what you're saying is is this category does it make sense and i feel like there's two ways that i kind of approach that question the first is there seems to be something about genderedness or gendering that has existed it has pers has persistently existed throughout all of human history thus far whether or not that is because it is a tool of like social organization whether or not it's representing something core to who we are that just is being expressed differently based on the culture and the time that's like one vein of it that there's something about genderedness that is human being said how we think about that genderedness has really changed and that's one of the points that Catherine von Stockton makes in the book is that it's only recently in the last hundred or so years that we have thought of gender as something distinct from sex, as distinct from our biology. And so that leads to kind of this next line of thought around maybe this is a concept that no longer is useful in that just like we understand that there is diversity of personality and, and uniqueness to ourselves – why would gender be any different? Why would it be this category that that would be meaningful to, to lift up? And I feel like I straddle both of those places. You know, I, I love imagining what genderedness looks like beyond even the ideas of a gender binary. Like what, what would unite us in an experience of selfness that connects us to other people's ways of moving and fashion and culture and, and gesturing and aesthetics? What would connect us in those ways that gender does if it didn't have to relate to maleness or femaleness? And it's so hard to imagine. And yet there, there seems to be something beautiful there for, for me that I feel a pull towards mm. and yet we're still going to live in a society with the historical legacy of of you know transphobia of of sexism and so all of that is still going to be here and so we're kind of again straddling different worlds and different conversations that are all happening concurrently mm. but the other part of that that i think is just fascinating and it's one of the points that stockton makes in the book is this discourse that we are in right now about gender 
this was an like really was an academic discourse that was happening in the 90s this question of kind of um you know non-binary a, a, a turn towards conceptions of the binary and 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 kind of an academic deconstruction of gender it it didn't first emerge in the academy but it's interesting to think that the academy was picking this up and you know she relates that her students said to her oh this would be great in theory but this is never going to be reality mm. we're never going to live into that world and yet here we are living into that world and that's not that long ago so if we've come this far in the last 30 years with questions of gender from like it would never be possible for someone you know for Sam Smith to be a non-binary Grammy award winner for to now that being mainstreamed. And of course he's being called satanic, but like, so did little Nas X, right? I mean, anytime you like confound I mean, gender, you, you become satanic in some and he way. Did, he did wear horns. So yes. Well, I mean, <laughs> that might've helped, but still like that, that is a huge transformation. And so what is the next 30 years going to look like in this question? I don't know. But I'm yeah. excited. Yeah, I mean, I think that gender, it doesn't mean anything. And also, it that for, that's a very personal statement to make in some ways. And so partly, I don't know, I guess I, guess I want to lift up that for some people, gender means everything. And... Yeah. And that is true, interestingly, for people on the right, <laughs> for whom gender roles and gender expression and gender policing is just intensely important. Well, it's connected then, to the very foundation of society. Right. And yes. And just your, not just this world, but the next. And so, and it also means everything for people for for whom their assigned gender at birth does not align with their inner sense and like it's interesting to think about that that there's them kind of as usual the kind of messy middle or that there's a bunch of us that it for whom this question can live kind of in theory and there's a bunch of us for whom there's others of us for whom this is really tangibly life altering important. And I, I'm curious about that dynamic and how that, um, do you think that there's any way to bridge those two ways of seeing, like in terms of how much gender does or doesn't, matter so i was reading judith butler's new book undoing gender and you know i i included a throwaway line at the end of the sermon about butler and and her work i don't i you know if you're not steeped in in the in the world of of gender studies or or queer world you might not have heard of judith butler before and I described her as patron saint and villain because she really has taken on both of those roles from within the queer trans community because of the complex ways that she interrogates gender. I mean, she's she's not a turf, a trans exclusionary radical feminist. She's not. She is very affirming of trans rights. Um, but in the the 
the first part of her book, she talks about the complexity of both holding gender as this, in some ways, mystical <laughs> experience. I mean, she wouldn't use those words, but like as this thing that is, it is constantly is undefinable in so many ways. And yet people have various degrees of attachment to it personally. Like how do we hold the complexity of this thing that connects us to other people and doesn't while also knowing that the, the, the rights of anyone to express their gender, to not be discriminated against and to have freedom in society, which includes things like having healthcare that affirms who they are, that those are two really important poles to hold at the same time. That like, even as we may be, or at least I am in a place of wanting to help us deconstruct notions of gender, the idea in the deconstruction, even if, if these things are, are imaginary, they're, they're just as imaginary as like my name. I mean, they're just as imaginary as any of the cultural products that we've created in, in human communities. They're just as imaginary as music. Like imaginary doesn't mean bad. But it does mean... And don't think uh, you mean imaginary. I think you mean like, you mean made up. Constructed. Right. But I think imaginary is kind of useful in that, where does this come from? It comes from us. Like there is this imaginariness. Sure. And then, then there's a possibility to imagine more expansively. Right. But well, like that in sense, that we made it up and so we can make something else up. Yes, exactly. And so, but then holding that with, you know, if I was, you know, testifying in front of Congress about gender, I don't think I'd be saying these sorts of things, right? The discourse that we need for the rights-based discourse is different than I think some of the internal discourses that we're getting at in some of these conversations. And that's complex. It's complex to hold both of those at the same time. And yet it feels reflective of the complexity of this topic to need to have multiple paradigms that fail to approximate the whole. I think we should listen to the sermon and then come back and have a few more questions that will be important after we listen. Before I begin my message, I need to give a small disclaimer. I'm going to say the word fag a bunch of times. As a queer person, I deeply understand the complexity of my word choices. But as they are only directed at myself and in the spirit of speaking the truth in love, I'm trusting our collective capacity for nuance while also recognizing it may be uncomfortable to hear. But that's part of the journey together, to make that journey together. So here we go. I can't remember the first time that someone called me a fag. That honor would probably go to a fellow elementary school classmate. I can't imagine the moment, though, because it happened many times. One small transgression as simple as a gesture deemed too girly, a friendship waged across the currents of gender segregation. Even doing well on a test would have been enough to earn the branding of faggot seared onto my skin. It's Strange to be a child called fag before you're gay, or rather, before you felt same-sex attracted, if such a thing exists, which we'll get to later. 
because you realize that faggotry is bigger than same-sex attraction and doesn't, in fact, necessitate it. Being a child called fag in the 90s instilled in me an understanding that belonging was conditional and revocable and that transgressing the gendered order had a cost. It hurt, but also it didn't which revealed something my childhood brain struggled to comprehend concretely and so processed in feeling and fantasy that being called a fag didn't just hurt, it felt right. With a clarifying truthfulness, the word resounded within me, leaving behind the sting of its slur, it found me and embraced me. I didn't choose this word hurled at me, but in many ways, stripped of its negative connotations, it fit better than the word lowered upon me at birth of boy. I was always a haphazard boy, but a more consistent fag. So this word and I developed a strange and sacred kinship. It saw me, revealed me, terrified, yet allured me. It was a site of violence and intimidation, but also empowerment. While others saw fag as limp, passive, and emasculating, for me, fag was my gender obliviousness seeking freedom, my authenticity of embodiment. Subversive is how I'd see it now, liberating definitely, but also powerful. For when someone called me a fag, I could detect fear within them. They were afraid, afraid of something about me, maybe afraid about something about themselves, afraid about something that only scared me because of people like them. But what does it mean to find a gender home in a slur? It's a tad strange, but gender, when you think about it, is strange. And don't think for a moment it's strange only for me or for those other people. Gender is strange for all of us. Now I need to pause here and illuminate three points. During this series, we're inviting us all to go on a, gender of be a journey of becoming gender fluent. There we go. Which necessitates being curious, conversant, and courageous. Point one. The idea of a child finding kinship with a slur may be unsettling and confusing for you to hear. Even just hearing me say the word fag so many times may be unsettling for different reasons if you're queer than if you're straight. Here is where curiosity comes in. I've just told you something true about me. It may not fit in the slightest with your experience. In fact, you may be actively repulsed by it. But I invite you, instead of trying to make it make sense or make it align with your life experience, to instead simply be curious. A curiosity that invites you to wonder and not judgment. I mean, why do we jump to judgment when we don't understand rather than the sacred hospitality that is curiosity? What would be different if instead of stopping or rejecting that which we don't understand, we instead stepped in and listened deeper. Point two. Bound up with gender are notions of sexuality and sex. And although these are distinct concepts, they dance together. Gender refers to a feeling, an inner sense of self. Sexuality refers to attraction or the lack thereof. Sex refers to the interplay of at least five distinct biological layers within our bodies, 
which do not divide us neatly or simply into two categories, as some would have us believe, but rather multiple unique places upon multiple spectrums. Part of being conversant in questions of gender is not knowing everything, but knowing enough to be able to decode situations, to see what's at play. So we're gonna practice a little bit, if you will. When I said that the label of boy was lowered onto me as a child, this weaves together the layers of sex and gender, right? Sex, because of the way we assign babies based on their external genitals with a gender. It's a boy, it's a girl. But gender, because of what it means to be a boy in most ways, has nothing to do with the genitals that are the basis of that assessment and our assignment, but rather our social story of what a boy is. That sort of makes sense? Second place to play. The inner resonance with fag invokes both gender and sexuality. Fag, of course, is a word associated with male homosexuals, right? This is a sexuality. But it mostly plays on tropes of emasculation, presumed emasculation, or the inferiority of femininity, which is, of course, about gender. Do you see how they dance together? Point three. If any of you call me a fag, I will be upset. As is the case with reclaimed words, they are to be used with care. That's part of being conversant. This is unlike when someone tells you their pronouns and name, which is, it is of course respectful to use those. This word is not for most of you. So it is respectful not to use it. Continuing on. I wasn't surprised to read in Peggy Ornstein's book, Boys and Sex. She spent about two years talking to young men in America about their sexuality, although mostly white and straight men, that the word, the slur fag, is still in use in middle and high schoolers across, high schools across the country. Not surprised because of my own experience, but also not surprised because my husband was called a fag in King Supers on Timberline last year because he was holding hands with our son, something our son likes to do, in the cereal aisle. What was surprising to me, though, was one of the ways this slur was being deployed. Boys routinely told her that they or others would get called it if and when they acted in any way romantic with a girl. The logic, if we can call it thus, Romance and emotional affection, care, and love are not manly. And the opposite of man is either woman or, if that doesn't fit, gay. Strange. It seems now to have, if you have a girlfriend or having a girlfriend is gay. Despite the fact that I can't think of anything more heterosexual. <laughs> than a heterosexual male high schooler in a heterosexual relationship with a heterosexual female classmate. Gender is strange. As Catherine von Stockton writes in her book that inspired this series, Gender, gender is queer, by which I mean irredeemably strange, ungraspable, out of sync with male and female, weirdly not normal, since lived gender fails to conform to normative ideals and expectations, even when it is played quite straight. 
I wonder when you have experienced gender strangeness. I asked this question on Facebook the other day, and this is how a few people responded. Strange, hearing women define and describe their gender primarily in terms of motherhood, which is an experience, it is not an experience I share. Are we actually the same gender? Strange. As a parent, I've always been uncomfortable with assigned gender roles, expressions, colors, and toys. Also strange is watching my two children understand and express their gender differently. One is trans, and the other has attached to the very culturally typical male activities and behaviors. I didn't invite or encourage that, did I? Strange. Listening to and learning from my trans son as he explored and talked about his gender, which sent me into a space last summer where I interrogated my gender probably for the first time ever. I still reckon I'm a cis woman for the very reason I've never had to interrogate it before, but I also realized as I pressed down deeper and deeper that almost everything that told me I was a cis woman was relational. I don't actually feel like a woman or can't even express what that means. So maybe my connection to gender is much looser than I realized. I'm not done with this line of inquiry. Strange, mostly when thinking about gender roles and expectations, especially when I was growing up, you can't do that because you're a girl. Or when my mother had my hair cut short and then people kept asking if I was a boy. Strange. Masculinity and manhood were ideas that seemed totally foreign to me and things I held lightly, but becoming a dad has really allowed me to claim a gentle masculinity that finally fits me. And I finally understand what gender euphoria can feel like. Gender is strange. As Stockton puts in her book, try this on for a very queer idea. Raise two human beings to think they're opposite, give them opposite traits to embody, establish different mindsets, behaviors, and interests, offer them opposite aesthetics to pursue, then ask these opposites to live together, love together, parent together, as they raise little opposites. Call this marriage as it was intended. Call this normal gendering. Isn't it strange? <laughs> you have your own story of gender's strangeness. But one of the questions that haunts me is one that Stockton poses in the book. Did you know your gender when you were born? She continues profoundly, you couldn't. Gender becomes something you know. Which begs the question, how do we come to know? How is the feeling of gender, because that's what it is, this inner sense of genderness that connects or doesn't to others' inner senses, only so much as the constructed words allow us to traverse the gaps between us? What is the wellspring of these gender feelings? It's not a rhetorical question. Consider, how did you come to know, to feel your gender? Did you feel it in your body? Is it a feeling about your body? Is it your roles and relationships? Is it the gestures that you use, the way you move in the world? Do you feel it in your heart? Has it changed? Do you want it to? Do you hold it firmly or loosely? I don't know your story, 
But if I hazard a guess, a hazardous proposition, but I'll risk it, is that the genesis of your gendered feelings exists at the intersection between an inner sense of self and an externally ex imposed story. As Stockton writes, we put the words girl and boy in kids. This is an intrusion to which they don't consent and to which they must respond their whole lives. How did this intrusion feel to you, cozy? Limiting, haphazard, oblivious. Some of you may be drawing a blank, these feelings inner and external aligning so crisply that you've never considered where one ends and one begins, or maybe that they are in fact distinct. And if that's you, forgive me if I'm so bold, but to say, push a little deeper. Gender is too strange for any of us to fit neatly in the line. In many ways, how our society deals with gender is along the lines of you are what you're told, but that doesn't settle it. How many of you were told something about gender that didn't settle the matter of what boys do or don't, the appropriate exercise of womanhood, the appropriate limitations of feminine ambition, the, that there were only two choices, that you were supposed to love or lust on or show affection and touch only certain people? And here's where some of the trick questions start to emerge. But what about bodies? Aren't there two types of bodies? Isn't that the determining factor of these gender stories? Sure, you might say there are outdated notions of gender roles, but when it comes down to it, aren't there biological determinants to identity and role? And this is, in fact, the argument coming from the radical gender right. Two propositions stepping together. The first, that biological sex is simple and binary. And the second, that biological sex assigns the correct inner feeling of gender, biological determinism. Now, I don't have time to get into the facts that our bodies exist on five different sex spectrums, that your chromosomes might not align with what people assume your genitals should or would look like, nor do the level of hormones that course through your veins maybe align with the specialized organs that you contain within yourselves. I don't have time to talk about the experience of intersex people numbering one in 60 whose genitals don't fit medical and social norms of either female or male bodies, or how the entire notion of gender as existing outside of the body was invented in the 21st century by trying to alter these intersex infants to conform to binary ideals of sex that they're very existence disproved. I don't have time for these arguments because not only is the science complex, it's also a smokescreen. Because if biology was determinant, determinant of your gender, how you felt, your sexuality, of who you love, and if it was so natural, why would we need to enforce gender so strongly from infancy? Why would we need to teach it and create whole systems of enforcement? If it was so natural and the obvious outcome of our biology, why would we be afraid for a child if they read a book about a transgender kid or a gay family or a boy who likes skirts? Why would knowledge upend the biological apple cart? The fragility of this argument protests too much. For in all of the fortification of this concept, it knows too well of its own instability. An instability showcased in how constructed our ideas of gender are. One such example, for the past century, we have been collectively unpacking gendered assumptions about women. We've had to contend with questions like, could women 
be trusted to vote. As Cheryl Jorgensen Earp, professor at the University of Lynchburg, who studies rhetoric in science, explains that the arguments that were used against women voting were arguments based in science. The rhetoric of these arguments was thus, that, quote, women simply had inferior brains, which made them unsuitable to the rigors of voting. <laughs> Anti-suffrage cartoons poked fun at women's reasoning abilities, which showed the interior of a woman's head filled only with letters, puppies, hats, chocolate, and the faces of admiring young men. Now, with the passage of the 19th Amendment, women were allowed to vote, and society collapsed. <laughs> Did I say women? I meant white women. Because here's the other twist in gender strangeness, which is race, that race and gender are inseparable. From the beginning of this nation and the original 13 colonies, as Stockton writes, we have often made legal and biological distinctions between at least six sexed categories of humans, white men, white women, black men, black women, native men, native women. How strange to be told that there are two sexes, two genders, and yet our very laws, still some of them on the book, say otherwise. Enslaved Africans were seen by Europeans as genderless and sexless. For in the brutality of the slaveholder's mind, how could you reconcile sending an enslaved woman into the fields to work when a white woman would never be expected to do such a thing? Well, did I say white woman? I meant rich white woman. This, of course, introduces the next complication, the way that money and gender cannot be separated. You are what you're told, but that doesn't settle it. Gender is strange for all of us. Recently, I came across a screenshot posted on social media of a conversation between two people on an online dating app. The first person, what are your adjectives? <laughs> the response, do you mean pronouns? <laughs> pronouns, these words to use in replace of a noun. No, not pronouns. Those are in your profile, the person responded. Your adjectives. Can you give me an example? Sure. Mine are nosy and chaotic. <laughs> Pronouns are hot topics these days. They force trained tongues and brains to act differently, to not assume someone's gender based on habit and appearance. It's Confusing to me that you will respect my name when I give it to you, but if someone else told you that they used they, them pronouns, you might question it or forget it. But back to adjectives, because there is something beautiful and sacred here, a challenge for all of us, so stuck in gender fortification of our society, there is an invitation to break forth and consider maybe for the first time or the hundredth time, what is this that you call your gender? If you were to describe your gender, what adjectives would you use? What phrase, leaving the typical words behind, would capture your sacred genderness? This is not a rhetorical question. I'm going to give you a minute to think about it. And then I'm going to give you a minute to turn to one another and share your adjectives 
knowing that they may not be the adjectives that define you for the rest of your life or even be a good assimilation of what you are now, but yet we're going to try and practice together, right? Curious, conversant, courageous. You may be thinking, I have no idea where to begin, Sean. So I'm going to share some from our staff team to get you going. Golden retriever in a sundress. <laughs> Tall and friendly. Cruise director who hates ruffles. Gender bored. Wrong size until expanded. A girl who doesn't girl the way girls are supposed to girl. Take a moment. What are your gender adjectives? Think about it. Risk sharing it with someone around you. Of course, that's not enough time, or maybe it is, to find adjectives and to share, to play in the playground, as it were. But I would love to hear maybe a few of them, if you'll risk sharing them and shouting them out loud. Anyone willing? Talkative introvert. What? Talkative introvert. Talkative introvert. <laughs> Tentatively enthusiastic. Mm, I like Rhinoceros running wild? I totally cannot hear you. Love it. What? Tomboy. Love it. Emotional beard. Emotional beard. That, I'm unpacking that in my brain. 
I love it. A few years ago, I developed a spiritual practice that for this series, I'm going to invite you all into. It's a spiritual practice of imagining that every single person you meet has a unique gender. To uninstall the assumptions that certain body shapes, certain styles reveal certain genders. And instead, inviting as you meet each person to simply marvel in wonder and try to see the uniqueness rather than draping them with gendered assumptions. Doing this has had some surprising impacts on me in realizing how much diversity and gendered expressions there are on our outer surfaces, but also how much similarities there are in expressions that I might have gendered oppositely if I had that lens on. But mostly it has brought me in touch with that deep sense of worthiness, a sacred affirmation, which is the core of our faith, to meet each person anew. This practice is not supposed to erase gender, just uncouple the automatic assumptions and categorizations that our trained brains practice. Because unburdened, you might find a freedom in relating not only to others, but to your own genderedness, a spacious freedom where you just might find a holy euphoria. But now, like any practice, I need to warn you, there are risks. You may fall down a rabbit hole of gender deconstruction. You may begin to see the limitations of words like heterosexual, because in the sea of human diverse genderedness, can we truly find opposites? Even words like cisgender may also be complicated, as you begin to wonder if cis means on the same side as, can we ever be on the same side as our gender beyond our surface? At our depths, mysterious and beautiful, do the poles of gender, as we've been told, hold a real gravity of alignment. Queering is dangerous, which is half the fun. But as patron saint slash villain Judith Butler writes, these sorts of interrogations, while they may get the, at the heart of some of our experiences of gender, should not replace the rights and identity-based framework advanced politically to ensure equal rights. Gender is so queer and has been made such a battleground that we need multiple operating paradigms to navigate its water. And isn't that beautiful? I'll put my cards all on the table. Gender is strange. How we've defined its concepts holds few consistencies across time and culture, and everyone breaks the mold, or at least might, if they, allow, if they were allowed or allowed themselves. Gender is imaginary. There is no gender outside the cultural stories that we tell each other, the words that we press upon each other or claim for ourselves. All of these are the script from which the gendered narratives that we perform in. But despite its imaginary nature, gender is real. Real in how it feels, real in how it feels a part of us, real in how it manifests itself in society and the way it's used to lift up some and marginalize others. Strange, imaginary, real, 
And gender is also sacred. Gender is sacred because this inner sense of self, our inner genderedness, no matter how it is forged, no matter how it aligns to what was pronounced at birth or was claimed later on in life, your gender is sacred. Your identity real. Its expression sacred, the unique alchemy of masculine and feminine, or neither sacred. Gender is the poetry each of us make out of the language we are taught, which lesbian and trans activist Leslie Feinberg wrote. Gender forms a sacred altar within us, holding an inner sense of selfness from which it fashions culture and belonging around itself and steps out into the light. And like all that is sacred, we should leave its embrace more liberated than constrained. And also, like all that is sacred, we know we cannot grasp it, fully understand it, for the sacred's other name is holy mystery. And how we approach mystery matters. Growing up in the gravity well of the F word, it has taken decades for me to metabolize its violence, to unpack its incongruity and the way it tried to make me small and to touch more fully on our strange and sacred kinship and how it plays out in questions of sexuality, gender, and even politics. In the ABCs of my life, fag would mean freedom. Well, it might even have another F word in front of it, if I'm honest. The incitement of freedom, the transposition of what you once were scorned for into the heart of your power, a gender fluency that releases solidity in favor of authenticity, demands the world be made safe for all to live in such freedom. And may that be all of our work to do. Amen. And blessed be. Okay, so a lot of what you get into in this fabulous, wonderful, complex sermon is getting at the dynamic between gender and sexuality. And I was wondering if we can just spend a few minutes teasing out some of those, some of that dynamic. In that, part of what I feel like you're getting at is that by adding in the question of sexuality, it, it automatically genders you differently. And I just, I wonder how, if you would talk about that and, and you, I don't know, let me just say a couple more words, which is, you know, you and I have, we've, we've talked about this, not directly a number of times. And in that we have talked about men, men and their, and who men are as if you are not in that category. And then sometimes we will say straight men, but I, I think there's an understanding between the two of us when we say that about what we mean when we say that, I think. So can you talk a little bit about your own relationship to that category and how your sexuality does or doesn't relate to that gendered state? Yeah. Oh, you know, this is 
looking back at my life, I can see how this question has always been a complex one. You know, growing up in elementary school, a lot of my friends were were not guys. And how I was gendered in those social situations varied. There were times in which I was gendered like one of the girls. And then there were times in which I was gendered not like one of those. And parts of those were distinctions that, well, most of them actually were were distinctions that people, the other people made for me in terms of like, oh, this is this is a time where you're not included. And this is a time where you are included. I didn't get to totally make that decision, which which makes sense in terms of a these elementary school type, you know, playtimes, but also the ways in which it's complex. So one of the parts of the book genders that I that I personally really resonated with was in one of the last chapters, I think in chapter four, where Stockton talks about the puzzle of cis, right? And cis, of course, is this new kind of prefix that's being used to apply to gender. And cis means on the same side of. And so it's kind of originated around this discourse of trans, which means like on the other side of um, or beyond. And so as trans people you know, came into the public discourse, there was this sense of being a trans man meant that the gender you were assigned at birth was not a man, but you were claiming manness in your identity, in your expression, in your sense of self, in your body in various ways. And so cis comes as this term that then reflects the kind of the opposite, the mirror of that, that this assignment does make sense to you for you. It was it's always been very complicated for me to figure out how I fit in there because the yes, there was an assignment of maleness to me as a as a child. But that as I said in the sermon was always haphazard. What that what that assignment meant in terms of how people interacted with me, how I saw myself, never quite aligned with my own inner experience, and yet I never identified as a woman. As I came into my queerness, I realized that how I was embodying my genderedness was like inseparable in a lot of ways from my experience of queerness, which is complicated because we think of sexuality as simply about attraction and like sexual attraction. I was embodying a kind of queerness in my gender and in in my worldview before I had sexual attraction, like before I started going through puberty, there was a queerness in my genderedness. And so, you know, the, the discourse of, or like talking about, okay, other men, am I included in that? Am I not included in that? You know, look at my surface, chances are you would code me as male, right? I have a I have a mustache. I have kind of a typical. I've got some facial hair. I've got a typical short haircut. You know, I wear clothes that are typically gendered as male, although not exclusively. Right? These are the like the ridiculousness of saying a t-shirt is gendered or even a haircut. But like in 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 our discourse, you know, in in society, people would generally make that assessment. And yet, my internal experience of genderedness, I, there's no way for me to separate my experience of queerness in how that helps me understand myself, how I relate across genders, how I move my body, the cultural kind of memes that I inhabit, you know, places where I feel freer, I have a much more expansive gender repertoire 
than places in which I am feel less free or have to put on kind of professional masks and whatnot. And so how I fit into that always has felt complicated. One, one of the things that Stockton says in the book is the notion of cis, Mark's gender, not sexuality, might deny the history of queer sexualities. How even masculine, straight-appearing gay men put their gender normalness hugely into question. Are they cis, though they have often dramatically questioned the concepts of man and woman? Are the contents of these conceptions greatly changing? So, you know, she brings in this phrase, cis-surfaced. That, that feels true. I am the surface of my gender presentation is either lesbian at a kegger or cis surface. Those are the places that I'm going with. Is there an internal experience of gender that is not male? Probably in the sense of this queerness that I can't separate without of it. it I, I, it's, it, it's, it's still beyond kind of words for me in terms of like how to figure out how to convey it. And I think that's true for a lot of us when we get down to it though. You said, why is a haircut or clothing, a t-shirt gendered, but partly what we're talking about is that this, like that, like if those things aren't gendered, what is, because ultimately these signals, these gestures and clothing, costuming, makeup, hair, they're all part of a package that comes to be an expression of gender where it is complicated is when the signals you're trying to cast are not the the ways those are being read or received in the world, right? So that you may be trying to signal a certain kind of gender with your clothing, but they're determined as a different sort of gender. And that's, I mean, it's a simplification of a really complex idea, but even how like, depending on what context you're in, the same signals will be read completely different ways. Uh, right. I mean, that's the sort of the the interesting hilarity of you can be a really, in a queer context, you could be like a really femme lesbian and you can come across as being really masculine in a straight context. And just that, that like completely different way of reading the signals. And, you know, it's so, you know, I think about my own evolution of some of these questions, like, as I was kind of figuring out my sexuality, what, what like label landed early on was gay. Gay is, is an interesting one because it does imply that I'm a man who is attracted to men. And, and the question, of course, is, well, firstly, we've already kind of complicated the man part. Secondly, but what, what does it mean for, for me to be attracted to men, what does that mean? Is that about, you know, self-identity regardless of body? Is it about bodies regardless of self-identity? I mean, there are all of these questions that that complicate it um, from its like kind of classical composition. Yeah. I started to think about this this week as I'm just curious about how it connects to notions of tribe and how... Some of this is about cl claiming who your tribe is in that <laughs> I'm going to talk about identity in a couple Sundays from now. Oh, now. So I'll get into this more 
but just to put it out there, I started to think like, okay, I'm, I would never identify or claim the, the gender of man in the same way I would never claim the label of Christian. And by that, I mean, there is a kind of tribal association that I do not, I cannot abide by. Like, I just cannot have my inner self match with because of the harm that I understand as a part of those, each of those. But it doesn't mean that there aren't good things and there aren't things that I identify with and there aren't things that are aligned. But so I, I, I wonder about in your man you're gay as a gender. <laughs> if there's something in there that's just really, that's really connects to tribe and a sense of like, who, who are your people and how are you wanting to claim belonging? And, and belonging is of course, usually a two-way street in terms of not only a group you claim, but also a group that claims Thank you. you. And, you know, I, I would say, you know, looking back at my, my life so far, there have been th the situations where I have been in a space that has been primarily male have never claimed me as anything but an aberration. Primarily straight male. Yeah. And, and even, you know, you know, I think even certain gay male spaces, there are times in which there are certain cultural dynamics that, that, that I feel outside of. But they would claim you. But they would claim me. Yes, that's true. You, so like, you, yeah, you may have moments of. Yes, that's true. That's true. They would claim me. And so that's just like, I realized that the other day at the gym that like, for there was mostly, actually there was all people who were on the surface expressing as as male and it was just so interesting how the the cultural way of relating was just so different than how i relate in the world and and no desire to be a part of it but but you probably passed yes a hundred percent and that's the complexity of as much as like there's complexity in what my own experience of my gender is that doesn't like undermine the privilege of the passing you know the privilege of my skin the way that i can code switch in in different situations to get by 100 percent. don't experience sexism all of that 100 percent true mm -hmm. and yet like an internal sense of being a man or being masculine i mean <laughs> I'm glad I'm not preaching about masculinity because because my theory is that masculinity is irredeemable. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we'll get into that in a couple of weeks. You can interview me on that topic. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think as part of the what do you when it gets down to it, what do we what do you actually mean by that? Because to this is a little ris risky, but I want to say, I, I think in a lot of ways, actually, you are really masculine. And by that, I mean, like, you know, as I've been doing the kind of background thinking about this sermon, not traditionally warm or affectionate, 
or you don't really, you don't, you're not like really into appearances and being like fancy. You, you do cook, but in a, I think a very kind of, I don't know, masculine way in that it's about kind of a formula that is that you're trying to solve a problem about. You're very analytical. I don't know. Like, and you do, you're very strong. You are, you do kind of, I don't know, you have this mustache, you know, like, I just, like, I'm just reflecting in that, that even though you're, you're sharing about the ways that you don't fit, I really, I, I think I know you pretty well. And I really, I, I see the ways that you are masculine there. And I mean, I see the ways you don't fit a traditional notion of masculinity, but I think there is something there that is masculine and in ways that I wouldn't say are traditionally feminine or female. So anyway, that's my reflection back. Like I said, a little vulnerable to kind of make claims about your gender, but. I think a lot of these, so take any of those characteristics, right? I bet you know people of many different gender presentations yeah. that embody them. Yeah. The question that, that always comes up for me is, if we didn't have these categories, would we draw the same like if we didn't have the male and the female boxes to sort the categories and then we were just given these categories, would we sort them in the same ways as we do now? No, we wouldn't. And in some ways, the categories can blind us from the ways in which, well, there are many, you know, I think about my, you know, my mother's gender. A lot of the things that, you know, you described in my gender presentation are, are similar to my mom. Yes. Right? It's a very, I mean, yes, I was actually, I've been thinking a lot about a number of our moms and the ways that like how, how complex gender is as an expression for a generation of mothers. Mm -hmm. But just like that, the, the kind of question of, yeah, like there is, there is this coding of these things. Yeah there's these surface aspects, there's some of these personalities and there's our inner experiences of them. And now they're all firstly contextual. Yeah. But and, I think, go ahead. And, and yet, yeah, there, there, there is some kind of resonant, you know, I resonance is from kind of an aesthetic perspective. Um, yeah, that's, that, that is there. Right. I have two thoughts. First of all, yeah. what, you know, in what way is your resistance or your alienation from that category, man, your own, your own sense of belonging, both whether you're claimed or you want to be claimed about sexuality. And by that, I mean, is man as a category oriented to sexuality in a way that just so dis dissonant for you and particular, like being a man means sexu sexuality that is, you know, that desires women as a category, right? So just that. And then secondly, how much of it is tribal and that there's something about it that just can't, that just cannot resonate because of things that you feel you can't be, you don't want to be claimed by. I think there are a lot of like gay men who 
who do feel a real sense of maleness in a way that has never resonated with me. Mm. Like an internal, like if gender is this internal feeling, um, I, I kind of, I feel like I have over the years accumulated presentations, personalities, affects that can form who I am in a way that is not deeply connected to male as the central organizing principle. And so if you were to say, well, what does being a man mean to you? I could tell you what it means for my body. Hmm. I can tell you how living in this surface shifts how I'm treated in the world. I couldn't tell you what that feels like. Hmm. And I think a part of that is, you know, that question of tribe in that, you know, when I'm in queer spaces, my gender expression shifts quite strongly. And part of that is around tribe and, and expansiveness of what is invited. And being read accurately. Yeah. And yes being read accurately and risks being different professional risks or just perceptional or having to explain things. Mm. And there's a lot more vocabulary in queer spaces to define identities and roles and practices and ways of being that don't exist in the hetero world. And so there is a different sense of, I mean, tribalness of, of that space that defines those dynamics in ways that are that feel more accurate and yet don't don't translate outside of queer spaces and because i because i think that if you were to say to me what are the positive aspects of masculinity i couldn't come up with anything to tell you that doesn't sound like femininity All right, we're going to come back to this in a couple of weeks. <laughs> so to close this out, I want to look ahead to the to the week ahead when Catherine Bond Stockton is going to be joining us here in at Foothills, and we'll be sharing what she says out, I'd imagine, on the podcast next week. We will, yeah. So, what do you hope? What are you most looking forward to in that visit? I'm looking forward to people being introduced to a thinker who has a very dissonant, culturally dissonant perspective that I think is beautifully jarring, presented in a way that is like playful, a little seductive, a little inviting, a little provocative. I think that like both of those pieces, the content of it, being challenging, but also the way it's delivered. Both of those, I think, pre present a, a invitation into a new way of doing this sort of discourse and thinking about gender. And, and the way that religion and communities can play a part in it. You know, as I've been talking to her about what she's going to preach about. So she grew up Unitarian and 
you know, didn't exactly know what that meant as a child. Um, and found her way into evangelical Christianity for complex reasons, like because of, in some ways, the way that the sex segregated spaces in evangelical Christianity gave her more freedom to explore questions of sexuality and gender than the kind of other other spaces in her life. Mm. And the way in which of mystery and the mystical play into these questions of gender, I think is really instructive for us as Unitarian Universalists who have come back to a sense of mystery and wonder as kind of bedrocks for how we approach these sorts of questions. In fact, apparently her first, her PhD work was around these questions of Mm. gender and mystery and questions of the divine. And so we're going to experience a bit of that. So I've been, I tell people when they're reading her work to kind of squint like to not hang on each word in the sense of trying to understand in completeness what is being said, but to let it kind of flow over you. Cause it really is this kind of conversation, lyrical, playful conversation. And that's kind of what I'm hoping people experience is just that, that experience of a little bit of mystery, a little bit of mysticalness, a little bit of provocation. Sounds awesome. I think it's going to be thrilling. Can't wait. And it one thing for folks who may be wanting to join online is that you can join on Zoom and on the website live, but we won't have a video recording going on Facebook and we won't have an on-demand version of the site of the worship. And that's just because of some of the, the ways in which speech like this is being weaponized right now against, you know, professors and people within educational institutions to kind of shut down any sort of spaciousness for the study or the inclusion of queer and trans people. And so we won't have video recordings available afterwards, but we will have the audio on the podcast afterwards. Great. All right. Well, thank you so much for the conversation, for the sermon and for the inspiration for the series and your leadership through this. I think it's a really important puzzling strange conversation, sacred conversation. Of course. Thanks for the provocative conversation too. There was so much there to unpack. I think we could go on another couple of hours. It's one of the reasons that I'm so grateful we have another few weeks ahead. First, Catherine von Stockton, this Sunday, coming Sunday, and then I will be exploring masculinity on the following Sunday. And I'm just that little topic. That's why I said we'd be coming back to that in a couple weeks. And then Reverend Elaine is going to be picking up on the following Sunday with a message about uh, kind of feeling gender stuck and how to get unstuck and what is that all about and what she means by that. And then the last Sunday in the series, we're going to be offering specific talking points to counter the completely often absurd points on the radical right about gender and gender expression and gender expansiveness. So that should be a very exciting Sunday as well. So we hope you'll just join us in all these podcasts along the way. Please share with your friends and family members who just could maybe appreciate the message or just people who are 
curious or questioning or wondering or maybe have a family member who is gender expansive or pushing them to be more understanding and curious about their gender. This could be a good resource. I also encourage you to go to foothillsuu.org forward slash gender fluent and you can find there, first of all, a place to ask any questions that you might have about gender. There's just an open, anonymous place to submit questions and uh, we'll receive them with your with respect and curiosity and I will answer them either here or on Sunday mornings and also there's a bunch of resources that you for you or for someone in your life that you feel like you could use them around just the educational resources so please check that out and like I said continue to join us for this this series we look forward to being in conversation with you as we continue to explore this strange and topic together. Sean and I both got to the ways that gender can often be an experience of restriction, a limitation placed on us. Catherine von Stockton talks about it as the cone that's placed over our heads uh, as babies, the cone we have to try to fit into and live into for the rest of our lives. In this spirit of recognizing the common restrictive experience of gender and the desire for liberation that we all have, I want to close our time now with a prayer, a prayer I offered on Sunday and a prayer I offer to all of us here. Creative force of love beyond gender and of all genders. Spirit of life. We are caught in a world we did not create, a world shaped too often by fear and shame, fear of bodies and fear of desire, fear of difference and fear of ourselves, shame passed down generation to generation that results as shame always does in violence. We long to feel at home in our bodies, to enjoy hair and clothing and makeup and gestures and jobs and relationships and roles in whatever way feels most authentic to us, to feel so free. We long to celebrate and give thanks for gender as a source of joy and pleasure. We long to know what would feel authentic and then to follow this path every day over and over with joy. Forgive us for the ways we block our own knowing and for the ways we block others. Forgive us for the ways we have policed our own gender and others, our friends and our children and our grandchildren, our partners. Release us into a greater and larger freedom. Teach us also to have patience with ourselves and with our world. Remind us that unlearning the prisons of gender and also race and class and all the isms, this is the work of whole lifetimes. Steady our commitment for this long haul social change work that is always an inside job. Surround us 
in a healing love. The love that holds us in our struggles and in our celebrations. The love that bears witness to the full tangled blessing of life. And the love courageous that alone holds hope for true and glorious change. Amen and blessed be. Everything that we do here is possible because it is made through relationship and community and dialogue. It is possible through partnership. We thank you so much for your partnership, for being in this conversation together, in this community together. This is, it is through community that we change ourselves and change the world. You can support our work by going to foothillsreview.org forward slash give financially that supports our podcast and supports all we do to unleash courageous love in northern Colorado and far far beyond. We look forward to talking to you next week. Have a good week.